Yeah, go ahead and grab your Bibles. We are in the Gospel of Matthew. We've been there for a long time. Um, we're coming to the close of that, the last couple chapters of Matthew, which zero in on the last week of Jesus's life. Um, you'll remember a couple weeks ago, I was actually here um, preaching um, the, the start of this last week. Jesus came into the triumphal entry, which quickly fizzled out when Jesus took a wrong turn. Then Matthew began to set up um, three parables that Jesus told on, on the kingdom and really how the people were missing it. Now Matthew has broken into another triplet, another series of three in his gospel as he comes close to the, the death and crucifixion, resurrection of Jesus. This other set of three is really um, the people responding, the leaders at the time responding to his parables, to everything that he's been doing. So last week you saw the Pharisees approach Jesus bold-faced, come up to him um, and try to entangle him in an ongoing debate that they're having. They wanted him to either take sides with Rome and therefore lose all the people or take sides with the people and, and damn himself with Rome, get himself in trouble. And ultimately, if, if he stood against Rome, they're going to come and kill him. Um, but Jesus, with some Jedi-level prowess, comes and lays down the theological smackdown on him. And it concludes with... The Pharisees, kind of, kind of bewildered, it, it, it actually says that they marveled. They marveled. This is, this is a first century way of saying they, they gave a, a slow golf clap, like, well played. You got us. This week, this week, we're, it's going to transition into a, a, a second group, ready in the wings to show up, pounce on Jesus at the first opportunity. This is the second of three confrontations. Um, next week, there'll be another. This group comes forward, not with a, a political agenda or an alliance or, or questions about paying taxes. They come forward with a question that on the surface looks, looks a, pretty honest, M maybe a little cheeky, but it looks like an honest question, a conundrum, if you will. This morning, though, we're going to peel back the layers on this question. We're going we're gonna to dig down, take a look at the root of it, really the heart that lies behind the question. And what I hope we see is that that same heart, that, that same motivation, that same thing that was there in this group, the Sadducees, is here in every single one of us. And Jesus' response to it holds a, a lot of... A lot of wait for us today as well. There is meat here. This is a great section of text. I get the weirdest texts when I'm here. Um, this one is no exception. Some of you, if you've read ahead, you're like, what on earth? But I promise you there's lots here. So go ahead, open your Bibles to Matthew 22. Matthew 22. We're going to be reading from verse 23 to 33. Um, while you grab your Bibles, if you don't have one, there is some in the back you can nab, or you can literally just Google Matthew 22, colon, 23, and you're going to be right where we are. So let me pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you that you're a God who has self-disclosed of yourself for us. You, you've, you've intervened in human history. You're not far off and distant. You, you came and you, you've made yourself known and you've given us your word. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would ignite the words of Christ. You would help us to see why Matthew, 2,000 years ago, chose to include this in, in the word for us today, and that we would 
um, be changed by this, we'd be transformed by it, that we would um, we'd come away with a bigger picture of you and our lives would be lived out in more joy and satisfaction and submission to you. Um, I'm very dependent on you for this, Holy Spirit, so I pray that you would um, help me, empower me. I pray against any demonic force, any spiritual force, because we know that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers that would, I pray against anything that would come and try to pluck the word out of any ear. I pray that you would help us to be transformed and to hear clearly the word this morning. I pray in the name of Jesus, amen. Now we're going to dive into the text. Uh, and this question that gets presented. But before we do, we need to know a little bit about the group. We need to a little bit more, more about the, the group asking the question. So last week we saw the Pharisees, pretty well known if you've read the Bible. This week what we're going to do is we're going we're to be encountering a group called the Sadducees. Sadducees, a much smaller group than the Pharisees, but a, a very well-to-do group. They were the one percenters, if you will, of first century Judaism. The aristocratic class of Israel. The highest echelon. The the educational, the political, the economic, the religious elite. They were the group that was essentially running the priesthood at the time. They, They held the office of high priest. And additionally, they held... 20 of the 28 seats of the Sanhedrin, which was essentially the the high court, the supreme court of this day and age. So they're holding a majority government over the way religion was practiced and and exercised in in Israel. They were very very well connected because they, they came from families of noble birth. So they sort of inherited some political ties and in as a result, they, they got some political positions. You could say they were in bed with Rome. And they, they liked to utilize this power and this influence and this connection that they had in order to make wealth, in order to, to, to benefit themselves, in order to produce wealth. So you remember a few weeks ago when Jesus entered <clears throat> on the triumphal entry, he went into the temple and he went in and he overturned the tables. This was the marketplace that the Sadducees had set up. The Sadducees had built this. They had places to buy and sell and profiteer off people as they came to do their sacrifices. They had exchange tables, which is kind of the today's equivalent of cash plan or like that check cashing place on the corner. They were, it was basically extortion. They were extorting the people of God and making lots of money. Now it's easy to look at groups like this and and just criticize them. It's really easy to do. And this goes on today. You look at, say, a family like the Bush family. The Bush family, three generations of presidents, beginning with Preston, then into George Bush Sr., George Bush Jr., um, clearly benefiting financially from the fact that there's been three generations of presidents. It's easy to look at them very critically. And, and this is what the people were doing with the Sadducees. They were looking and going, you're corrupt. You don't love the country. You don't love the religion. You're just in this for the kickbacks. The the nation hated the Sadducees because of this. And the motive, I don't think I'm falsely representing them. As soon as the temple was destroyed, the Sadducees disappear. Once the place to profiteer off people was gone, they were gone. Off to different ventures. 
All this to say, it's really easy to find the flaws in others. It's, it's simple. It sticks out if you're like me. I, I'm actually, I think I have like a demonic proclivity to this. I can just, I'm very critical by nature. But it's easy to do this while missing, so to speak, the log in our own eye, to, to not see that we're very similar. We can sleuth out the misguided um, intentions. We can spot, spot crooked motivations in others, but miss them entirely in ourselves. And I want to suggest that perhaps we're more like the Sadducees than we might initially think. The Sadducees, they were opportunistic. They were trying to benefit themselves. They were obsessed with self-promotion. Always looking for a way to improve their standing. <clears throat> but aren't we? Aren't we the same way? We just don't have as much political power or position. Jesus comes into Jerusalem. He overturns the whole business structure that they had set up. He's attracting the attentions of the crowds and, and Rome and the Sadducees. They're looking at Jesus and they're probably thinking, man, he's messing with everything we have going on. He's either going to convince the people that they don't need our business or he's going to aggravate Rome and we're going to lose this all so they try to get rid of him. But this is what Jesus always does. Jesus always comes and, and he messes with our plans. He frustrates our agendas. He puts a stick in the spokes of the alliances and the schemes that we have. Our motivations, they're not Jesus' motivations. Our objectives, they're not Jesus' objectives. Jesus has his own objectives. Now, as we, as we read on and we see the Sadducees bring their question to Jesus, trying to entrap him, trying to lay a snare for him, um, we can't for a second think that we don't also try to stop Jesus from interfering with our plans. We do this too. We can forget that we also try to do this all the time, prevent Jesus um, from stopping us from pursuing our objectives. Jesus, I've been pursuing this a long time. I've been at this way before I met you. Jesus, this thing's going to make me happy, though. I've got something really going good for me here, Jesus. Don't intervene here. The heart level, you and I are very similar. At least I am, to the Sadducees. So with all that said... Long intro, Matthew 22, read with me, beginning in verse 23. <clears throat> the same day, the Sadducees came to him who said that there's no resurrection, and they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for her brother. <clears throat> now, now they're... For his brother, pardon me. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and third, down to the seventh. And after them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, Jesus, of the seven, whose wife will, they, will she be? For she had, they all had her. So two things you're probably thinking right away. Man, if I was the seventh guy, the second the sixth died, I would run for the hills, Right? You don't even need to be the seventh. About five, you're like, hey, I think I see a pattern. 
But you're probably thinking, what a weird question to approach Jesus with, right? This is weird. There's, there's lots going on here, clearly. Clearly. Um, while we've talked a little bit about the Sadducees' political power and their position that they held, we haven't talked about what they believed. We haven't talked about their belief, their theology, if you will, their view of God. The, the, the Sadducees, they were fundamentalists that took all the fun and kept all the mental in fundamentalism. They were fanatical literalists. They like to examine and apply the scriptures. They, they, they liked to um, take the, the Levitical purity laws and then basically draw a big hedge around them in order to protect people from ever transgressing them. It's like when you go up to Lynn Canyon. I've said this before. You go up to Lynn Canyon, they've got fences to keep you back from the edge so that you never fall over. The Sadducees had put fences way back from the edge in order to protect people from ever transgressing. So they would take things like in the Ten Commandments, it says that um, we should honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. They'd hear that, they would get giddy. They'd get excited and they'd go, ooh, let's create ten rules so no one ever gets close to doing that. And then they would enforce it and with great joy. Great joy. These guys, they were better known for what they were against than what they were for. And the question they're approaching Jesus with, it has much to do, at least on the service, with um, an area of theology that they disagreed with the, in the whole rest of Judaism on. And that's the topic of the resurrection. So Jews in general um, believed in life after death and that the soul goes on. So either in... A, eternal reward or eternal punishment. The Sadducees denied resurrection altogether. They denied any notion of the afterlife at all. And you might go, why? Why would they deny that? The reason is that they had a differing view on what scripture, what was scripture. So the Sadducees believed only the writings of Moses, the first five books of the, the Old Testament, were, um, was in fact scripture or the word of God. So all the rest, the, the prophets and the writings that make up the entirety of the Hebrew Bible and our Old Testament, they would say, oh, no, 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 that's not scripture, that's maybe commentary, but we can only trust the first five books. So if they couldn't prove something from the Pentateuch, the first five books alone, they denied it. So angels, no. Demons, no. Heaven, no. Hell, no. Resurrection, no. Supernatural events, no. A Messiah, no. No Messiah in, in the Sadducean worldview. They, they had no hope of a coming kingdom of God. They believed this was it. And therefore, they had no belief in or a use for a Messiah. They had no use. They had no grid work for Jesus whatsoever. So the idea of some Messiah popping up, rousing the people, exciting them, freaked them out. They feared it because all that could happen was they would upset Rome and it would wreck the very good thing that they had going. And they believed that this was it. This is it, so cash in your chips now. So as a result of their views, they regularly got into big debates 
the Pharisees who did believe in all these things. They did believe in angels and demons and eternal um, reward, eternal punishment, supernatural events, and a coming Messiah, and even a resurrection. The Pharisees, they acknowledged the Pentateuch, but like us, they also believed that the rest of the writings and the prophets were the word of God as well. So as a result, they had tons of promises, tons of promises about a resurrection. I got a couple up on the screen. The first one, Daniel 12. It says there, many of those who sleep, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So there, the scriptures presenting the idea of a resurrection and reward or punishment. Psalm 71, 20. You who have made me see many troubles and calamities um, will revive me again. From the depths of the earth, you will bring me up again. There's the idea of the resurrection. Now, there is dozens of these. Dozens and dozens of these texts that really do present a strong theology for this idea that life does not end when we die. You can go go find those on your own, but just a couple um, to, to remind you of the hope we had. So Sadducees not believing in this, they hear that Jesus, just a couple days earlier, has raised Lazarus from the dead. Remember that? And they're going, they have no framework for understanding this. On top of that, they've heard Jesus say things like, I'm the resurrection in the life. What are you talking about, Jesus? They have no grid work for Jesus. So they approach him with this question about the resurrection because they want to win their debate with the Pharisees, but they want to debunk this guy. And in order to do this, they they bring up an Old Testament law from Deuteronomy 25. If you want to hang a left in your Bibles, Deuteronomy 25, just for fun, so we know what we're talking about here. Deuteronomy 25, verse 5 to 10, it says this. There was a law given then. If brothers dwell together, one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside of the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, pull his sandal off his foot, and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. (laughs) Stakes are high. You don't want to be caught breaking this law. Ain't nobody want that title looming over their head, right? This law is what's called uh, the leveret law. Leveret comes from actually a, a Latin word, lavere, which means brother-in-law. All that to say, this law was given to protect the woman. The, the woman um, left her family, became part of another tribe. 
And when the husband died, she would have no one to look after her. So in order to protect her, she would, she would stay in that, that tribal family and they would look after her. And in order to protect anyone from seizing the inherited land that the brother had, the brother-in-law would help her have a child that would continue on the, the dead man's name so that this land, this inherited land, which was really the theme of the whole Old Testament, would be protected. The people of God would be prevented from being pillaged. Nobody would start to take too much land. That's what's going on. Now, there's a couple um, notable cases of this that we see in the Old Testament. One is in the book of Ruth. You remember Ruth and her husband. They take off. They come back. She, her husband dies, and um, she's left. No one to take care of her. She's gleaning, and studly Boaz comes along, rescues her, becomes her kinsman redeemer. He redeems her, brings her in, and redeems the land. But we see a negative case of this as well in Genesis 38 with Onan. Onan refuses to do this, and not only does he get called um, the man whose sandal was taken off, but God actually kills him. God actually kills him. The Sadducees, they approach Jesus with a conundrum. A problem. They think it's a logical absurdity. They go, let's just follow this to its logical conclusion and see it makes no sense, Jesus. It's called, uh, the fallacy is called reductio ad absurdum. They say, just by your own logic, this makes zero sense. So explain this. If there's a resurrection, explain this. But the question we're going to see, it's not really the question. The question that they're asking is not really about leveret law. They're coming for help with a really tricky theological point. They're, they're trying to logicize their way out of the lordship of Jesus. They're trying to find a reason that they can ignore the miracles that Jesus has been doing that they can disregard the resurrection of Lazarus just days before. They're trying to build an argument for why they are right, everyone else is wrong, and Jesus can be ignored. This is not just a first century issue. This is not just a Sadducean issue. If you're like me, you've done this and tend to do this as well. We come up against something Jesus said, and in order to prevent having to apply or obey it, what we do is we create a system whereby obeying God would actually be absurd. Love your enemies. Turn the other cheek. Oh, but Jesus, I have a legal right. My country gives this to me. You don't know what they've done to me, Jesus. He said, whoever's angry with his brother is liable to judgment, but you don't know what my brother did. He took my portion of the inheritance. We'll follow Jesus till it costs us. And we'll logically explain away any reasons we might actually have to obey him in that matter. I'm not the only one who does this. Don't look at a woman with lustful intent. But Jesus, the nudity is part of the storyline. And besides, there's something redemptive in the rest of it. It's a really good story. And if you squint your eyes and tip your head just right, it's almost artistic, Jesus. 
But God, I love this person. Feels right to sleep with them. You know my heart. You know that I... Jesus, this is the 21st century. We're not stuck in those weird first century sexual mores. I want this. Surely you didn't mean that. Don't we do this? We approach Jesus and we try to lead him into traps whereby we're right and he's wrong. The list of ways that we do this is longer than I have time to get into. The list of ways I've done this is longer than I have time to get into. But I would encourage you to think on this. To ask yourself, where am I doing this? Maybe ask some people around you, people that know you. If you're married, ask your spouse. It's a scary thing, but say, is there a way that you see me not living in light of the scripture? Is there a way that I'm blatantly disregarding a command of Jesus? Sometimes the answer will hurt, but it will also heal. Up on the screen, a prayer. I've been praying a lot, trying to end my day, start my day with it. It's from Psalm 139. The psalmist says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. I'd encourage you, um, you can just leave that up for a second. If you want to take a photo of that, remember where it is. But this is a powerful prayer. Is there any sin? Is there anywhere that we've been ignoring God and just we grow numb to it? Is there besetting sin in our lives that we don't even notice anymore? Listen, you're going to need the help of someone else. Listen to what Jesus says in response to all this. Verse 29, Jesus answered them, You're wrong. You're wrong. Because you know neither the scripture nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they're like the angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I'm the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. The crowd heard it. They were astonished. Jesus begins by saying, you are wrong. And he doesn't need to say anything else really doesn't. This is God in the flesh, the one who spoke creation into being, the all-powerful, all-knowing, omnipresent God of the universe. He needs say nothing more. There is not, nor could there be, any authority higher than him. He has self-attesting authority. If there's any other authority that we need to prove him by or any court that we need to run him through, then he is not the highest authority, but he is because he's the God of the universe. He doesn't need to say anything else other than you're wrong, but he does. He does. Um, he says, you're wrong, for you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Um, most English translations say something very similar to this. It's, you error because. So your error is, is, because you know neither the scriptures or the power of God. And in the original Greek, if you take a look at this sentence, it reads, it reads more along the lines of, you error, you err not knowing the scriptures or the power of God. Minor distinction, maybe you don't even notice it. Um, it's saying their error is not knowing the scriptures, not knowing the power of God. 
I like how the contemporary English version words this. Um, it says, you are completely wrong. You don't know what the scriptures teach. You don't know anything about the power of God. Really plain and to the point. It's hard to sometimes capture what is said in the Greek and carry it into the English. This word wrong in Greek, it, it means severed from what is true. So Jesus is saying, you're wrong. He's saying, you, that makes no sense. There's, there's no foundation of truth for that. There's no way you could cognitively come to that conclusion soundly. You're severed from what is true. But, but why are they? Why are they severed from what's true? Because they've put another qualifier in place before God. They've said, in order for what you say to be true, it's got to line up with this thing that I have, this court of appeal that I'm going to run you through. We do this too. We have all sorts of courts of appeal that we put God through our logic, cultural norms. For them, for them it's the tradition of their faith system what they're comfortable with, what made sense to them at the time, the opinion of their, their tribe, the way they've grown accustomed to thinking about God. That's the qualifier that they've put in place. They've built a neat and tidy little box that God can exist in. If he falls outside of that, we can't be true. We've got this little corner of our life egg, egged out for you, Jesus, and that's where you fit. But... You cannot put God in a box. You can't put God in a box other than the box he's already put himself in. You can't put God in a box other than the box he's already put himself in. Let me word that differently. We can't put any restrictions on God other than the ones he's put on himself. You could also say the only thing that limits God is his own nature and character meaning God's never going to act in a way contrary to himself, contrary to how he has revealed himself to us in the scriptures. But remember, they are ignorant, not just of the scriptures, but God. They're ignorant of both. They were all right with the idea of a God who could start a world in motion, get things going, give them some laws that worked really advantageously to themselves, in this regard, they were really just deists, if you are into philosophy. Um, they believed there was a God, but that he couldn't do anything. He wouldn't show up. This, this belief at the heart of their question, I think, is why Matthew includes this story. Why not? Just as Bible readers, when we read something, it's a good question to ask, like, why is this in here? Why, why include this? This is a really random question, Jesus gets asked. Why include this? I think because the same heart is at the root of some of our questions. We're not really hung up on our questions so much as the idea that, that God could show up. We're hung up on the idea that God has any right to say anything to us about how we live here and now. We're hung up on the idea that there could be a judgment for how we're living right now. And it's into this question, this doubt that Jesus says you're wrong. Um, in the immediate context, um, as it applies to what Jesus is saying with regards to um, the resurrection, there, there is evidence for the resurrection in the Pentateuch. And so Jesus, he quotes Exodus 3.6, 
It says up on the screen, it's it's in our text, but this is what Jesus is quoting from the Pentateuch. He's saying, hey, you need evidence from the Pentateuch that there's a resurrection? Let me give it to you. And he goes to Exodus 3.6. He says, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. You might look at that and go, well, what, what, what is that proof? A few commentators, this is not my thought, but a few commentators have pointed out that what Jesus is doing is defending the resurrection on the tense of a verb. He doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or I am the God of the people formerly known as Abe, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, I am the God, present tense, of present tense Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, they're still alive. They've not disappeared into nothingness. He defends the resurrection on the tense of a verb. And this is important. This is really important. It's important for us today. Why? Because God made promises to these men. He made promises to them that didn't come true in their lifetime. Hebrews 11, um, 13, it says, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob died not having received the things promised. So then is God's word not true? That's the only solution. That's what the Sadducees got to believe. If there's no resurrection, then God's word isn't true. But God's word is true. He does keep his word. He, he keeps his word by raising them from the dead where they, they now exist. The whole Old Testament pointed forward to this moment where God would come and crush sin. The first promise made after sin entered the world was that someone would come and crush it. And the whole Old Testament story is a tale of this coming serpent crusher. Jesus came, defeated sin, therefore, uh, and could not be held by sin. And the consequence of sin, which is death, therefore is taken care of for us. So now... This is the good news. This is the gospel. This is what no other religion in the world offers. Now, while we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked, as Ephesians 2 says, and while there was a consequence for our sinful actions awaiting us, now it's been taken care of in Christ. And so now we can resurrect and experience the same resurrection, eternal life that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob now enjoy. That's the gospel. God is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living, and that's why we worship him. But notice what else it says. When he says it to them, he says, Have you not read what God has written to you? Have you not read what was said to you by God? I love this. Jesus saying, Bro, do you even read your Bible? To the religious elite of the time. This tells us something so good about scripture. This is not just a record. This is something written to us. This is something written to us. This gives us life. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, this will fan into flame our hope, our joy, our satisfaction. We need the word of God. Don't want to have Jesus say to you, bro, did you even read your word? There's so much in the word for us, and there is time in the day to read it. Brag on my wife for a sec. My wife gave birth, led a Bible study this year, and is like, this week we'll finish reading through the Bible in half a year while parenting and homeschooling three kids. There's time in your day to read your Bible. I don't say that to shame you. 
I say that to say there's always time in the day and your spirit needs it. You can't live the same way you can't live without bread, sustenance. Your spirit cannot live. Some of you are anemic and you need the word of God. Man, I'm way off my notes here. This whole problem that they come to Jesus with in um, wondering, hey, how could this woman be married to seven and then go to heaven? Who will she be married to there? It only exists, it's only a problem because they misunderstood what heaven will be like and they misunderestimated what God could do. They misunderstood the scripture and the power of God and they put him in a box that God hadn't put himself into. It's because of their doubt and the confines of their own belief that they feel to see God standing right in front of them. And it's ironic. They're having an argument about God with God. They're arguing about what God's like while standing in front of him and talking with him. Are we perhaps falling into a similar error? Are we putting God into a box that he hasn't put himself into? Are we confining what God could possibly do in our lives? Are we carving out a really small corner of our lives, a couple hours on Sunday morning, and holding back the rest? Are we limiting what God could ask of us? Jesus, he then takes a minute and um, he tells them what heaven will be like. He doesn't have to. Um, and, he, and he doesn't quote a verse, which is interesting. Um, from what I can tell, I can't find any verses on what heaven, um, what marriage will look like played out in heaven. Um, so Jesus, he kind of lifts the, the roof off this issue and he just speaks to it directly. And uh, he says, verse 30, uh, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. That depending on what your relationship is like, you might be sad, you might be going, hallelujah. Uh, I don't know what your marriage is like, but in trying to understand this, it's important what we, re- we remember what the Bible says about marriage. Ephesians 5, it says that marriage is a picture of Christ in the church, the church being the redeemed people of God from all time. Marriage, our earthly marriages, my marriage to Rebecca is supposed to be a picture of God's relationship to the church. So it's also important that we remember that the Bible does teach that there's marriage in heaven. It does teach that. Revelation 19 tells us about an amazing, amazing wedding feast that's going to be in heaven. And the ones it says that are getting married are the church and Christ. The church and Christ. So in the same way, the whole Old Testament is kind of a type and a shadow and a picture of how Jesus would come and, and do away with all that. And once Jesus came, the whole temple system was done away with. So too is marriage. Marriage is a picture of how God is going to relate with his people. And when that happens, Jesus is saying, the marriage system as we understand it changes. It changes. When that which is perfect appears, that which is imperfect will fade away. Now, if you're hearing this, some you're going to feel sad. Just acknowledge you're single, and maybe you've dreamed about marriage for a long time and some of the benefits that come along with it, and you're thinking, man, I can't fathom a heaven where I haven't got to experience those things. 
Others of you, you can't fathom an eternity without your sweetheart, the one you, you love. I remember early on in marriage, um, me and Rebecca talking about this text and, and feeling weird that I wouldn't be enjoying my wife's company for eternity. So we made a pact, and I remember this, Rebecca, um, that I would still go over to her house for dinner. I would go to her place for dinner every night. My wife is a great cook, a fantastic cook. I couldn't, at the time, imagine eating anything else. I'm like, I, I can't do without this. Now, I'm, I married Rebecca because on our very first Valentine's Day, she broke into my house with a squid, and she cut the squid all apart and made me homemade calamari, homemade pita, tzatziki, and a Greek salad. And I walked in, I didn't tell her, I had to... I knew then it was done. It's a done deal. This is my woman. <laughs> but I couldn't imagine eating anyone's cooking ever again. Here's the problem with that, though. That was based off of my limited experience. Since getting married, we've had the pleasure of eating in some amazing, amazing places. Last summer, we were in Zanzibar on this rooftop doing mission there. Amazing food, amazing sunset at sea. When we lived in South America, we went out to this five-star uh, restaurant in Santiago, Chile. Amazing food. Amazing food. West Oak in Yaletown, you're welcome. We see South Granville on 14th. Mmm. Love it. There was this, there was this one place we went um, early on in marriage in Vietnam, this town Hoi An, and there there's all these canals and people push you around like in Venice on these boats and we pull up to this restaurant called Mango Rooms. Mango Rooms, so good. We go in and we order appetizers. We eat them and they're so good. We ordered, a, like both got mains. We were stuffed, but it was so good that we ordered another set of appies and another set of mains and then just sort of like rolled home really slowly. It was so good. And here's the thing, when we were there and we were eating together, if you came up to my wife and said, hey, Rebecca, are you sad that you didn't cook tonight? Her answer would be, no way. If you came up and asked me, wouldn't have you rather just ate at home tonight? No. No, it was so good eating this other meal together. We were eating a meal together that was blowing our minds apart. I think marriage in heaven is going to be like eating at mango rooms. It's going to be like sharing a meal on a rooftop in Zanzibar. We're not going to miss cooking at home. When we experience heaven, the true picture of what marriage is to be, none of us are going to be looking backwards and missing what we once had. We're going to be tasting the better picture of it. It's going to blow our minds. And just like eating at the greatest restaurant here on earth, it's going to be something that my wife and I will enjoy together. One scholar notes, he says, the absence of marriage and its privileges does not mean that love will cease. Love will be perfected in the resurrection. And we will all love and be loved perfectly. The Sadducees misunderstood this because they misunderstood the scripture and the power of God. 
They put God in a box that he didn't put himself into. They confined God to a limitation of their own thinking. And they put heaven in a box of their own limited imagination as well. Are we maybe doing that too? How we think of heaven, how we imagine heaven, it will be reflected in how we interact and treat the present reality around us. If we're resisting the lordship of Jesus in any area, it's probably because we have too big of a view of our present and too small a view of the future. As we've worked through this text now, there's three things I really hope we've seen. The first of which, that we are more like the Sadducees than we might have ever realized before. And I want to ask us, where does the lordship of Jesus threaten your life? Or are you threatened by the idea of him claiming lordship over your life? Where have you been logicizing your way out of obeying Jesus? Where have you been crafting arguments to justify your present lifestyle in order to avoid any change that he might ask of you? Where are you fighting Jesus? The second thing I hope that we saw is that the foundation for, the foundation of some of our doubts and questions and arguments against God's Uh, God results from a small, confining, limited view of him and his scripture. And I want to just ask, where have you been editing the word of God? Where have you been just not even engaging in it at all because you don't want the challenge? Have you decided that there is something that God could absolutely not do or say that's outside the bounds, the realm of even plausibility? Can I encourage you to just pray and ask God, is there a way that I've been limiting you? Third thing I hope that we would have seen after reading this is Jesus' presentation of what eternal life will be like. And I pray that our mental picture of what that could be, what that will look like, what will be to experience that will have expanded, that any ways that we've been limiting him or 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 thinking too small would be recognized and repented of. And that we would be convicted um, of any ways perhaps we've been making too much of this temporal life. This is the holy living God. The God of the living, not the God of the dead. He has life for you. And some of us have been believing that God is only going to call you to death. While there is death, there is always life on the other side of it.